Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the Paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. So are you going to geek out? Because I'm a little bit geeking out that our friend is coming back on the podcast, Denise Minger, who's like one of my biggest smarty pants, real food, paleo crushes. Um, I massively have a girl crush on Denise. She knows it. And it's totally fine. <laughs> like we're talking about her, but she's still right here. Um, right. Yeah. I'm just saying it's, it's, this is not a new confession. She has heard me say this like at least 17 <laughs> times now. So Denise, for those people who have been living under a rock, um, I'll just state for the record that I first found out about you probably the way most people did um, with your completely amazing dissection of the China study years and years ago. And since you've um, done a lot of your career focusing on um, getting to the root of a lot of um, either information or myths about the um, health industry in general. And I know your latest publication, Death by Food Pyramid, is one of Sarah's favorite books. Oh, completely one of my favorite books. I mean, like, it's it's nonfiction. It's a nonfiction sort of health history more than just health book. And I was like riveted and like that does not happen very often where you're reading like nonfiction and you can't put it down. It's still probably one of my like probably my favorite like paleosphere books ever. And just and I quote it like it informed me so much in terms of um, like where health guidelines actually came from and how they got to be so misguided. And it just, it's, am- I mean, now I'm just gushing and Denise is <laughs> blushing and all those you good things. It's good to do, sir. But no, I mean, we've, we've had Denise on the show before. And I think I've also ranted and raved about how much I, I loved Death by Food Pyramid, but it's just one of those books where I always have to have three copies because I lend them out and never get them back. Um, <laughs> And so it's, yeah, it's just absolutely one of my favorites. So if you have not, to our six listeners, read Death by Food Pyramid yet by Denise Minger, um, it's I, it's an amazing read. And it's um, it's just one of those, I almost think it's like one of those ones where you get really like worked up about politics, which I suppose nobody actually needs right now. But <laughs> at the same time, it's just, um, it's inspiring though, because it then makes I mean certainly makes me feel like all of our voices in this sort of grassroots alternative health movement that is paleo primal ancestral is um even that much more important. So it's, it's an amazing book. There. I'm good. Thanks, Stacy. <laughs> Not that I was trying to do an introduction there or anything. I know um, I just I just I tangented <laughs> there. It's fine. It's cool. So um, as Sarah alluded, there are many awesome things about Denise, uh, not the least of which is her latest book. Um, But also 
also her smile and her giggle. Yeah, you are adorable. I think I met you on the uh, one and only low-carb cruise that I went on. And you were there, and I was like, oh, my gosh, she's so pretty. Like, I'm uncomfortable looking at her. Like, and um, – but that's not what I like most about you. I like your brain. <laughs> I really like this show because you both make me feel good about myself. <laughs> it's like, hard to not be like, sure, I'll come on and get flattered for 10 minutes. Right? Right? <laughs> um, to- to, just so you know, we do not actually talk about this like this about all of our guests. Like this is not yeah. the normal come on the paleo view and have Sarah and Stacey gush for 20 minutes before we actually get into any kind of topic. Uh, <laughs> so you, sh- you should feel special because you're awesome. Well, so are you. Oh, now it's a love fest. <laughs> all right. All right. You <laughs> Break it up, girls. Break, break it, it up. up. Okay. So... Um... <laughs> What we thought we'd do is have some fun and have you on the show. We haven't been doing a lot of guests, and um, I'm super excited that you're uh, going to be joining us for this question that we got. We actually referred to inviting you on the show when we talked about this last week, and um, I'm thrilled that you were able to join us. Um, So, Sarah, maybe you could just remind our listeners kind of the basis of of the question, and then... We can jump into it. Yeah. So um, the reason why we asked Denise on was because this question is completely inspired, uh, at least uh, in large part, by uh, a talk that Denise gave at the Ancestral Health Symposium in 2014, which I was in the room for and attended and loved. And then um, Denise actually posted an epic, epic like it could be an entire book by itself um, blog post on her website um, with all of the science and the even more detail about all of the, the science that she was talking about in her talk. Um, and it was a very thought provoking talk. So, you know, I, I think I can summarize it very well by sort of saying, you know, we have this really interesting body of scientific literature that shows that balanced macronutrients. So, you know, somewhere like 30, 30, 40 protein, carbs, fat, you know, maybe something's 20%, maybe something's 50%, but not nothing too crazy is health promoting. That's what we see in hunter gatherer societies. Um, that's what we know from a variety of scientific studies has, you know, the best gut health and the best hormone regulation. And um, the, you know, we've got really great, you know, insulin sensitivity, and you're more likely to be getting sufficient micronutrients. We have this, you know, quite extensive body of scientific literature that says middle of the road eating, you know, whole nutrient dense foods is like this great optimal way for humans to eat. And then you've got this, these really interesting extremes. Um, So we've talked about ketogenic diet on the show before. So like that's one extreme. And what Denise really opened up everyone's eyes to in this talk was this whole other extreme of these um, studies that were done with extremely high, not just carbohydrate, but high sugar, low fat, low protein diet. So like almost like the opposite of a ketogenic diet and showed that it had therapeutic potential kind of in the same way a ketogenic diet has therapeutic potential, not 
a healthy way for the average person to eat, but there's some interesting pathways being activated and some interesting mechanisms there that when you're starting to talk about, you know, certain uh, metabolic dysfunction, certain health conditions, suddenly these extremes have some therapeutic benefits. And why is that? And I think that, you know, Denise, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Denise's point, at least the take the take home message that I got is this is a really interesting thing to think about why this would be. Um, and maybe this can guide future research. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, just thinking about, you know, how these extremes can be valuable in certain situations when that's not necessarily what we see as being a sort of natural human diet. And, um, and I think that it was basically that, you know, provocation of thought that got our, you know, question writer completely (laughs) confused. (laughs) So I thought, Denise, I thought it'd be really interesting for, I mean, maybe actually what would be great is, can you summarize um, that research and sort of what it told us? Because I don't think these are studies that most people have on their radar in any way. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a fantastic um, summary of everything. Very well done. Uh, let me start by saying to you, so I saw the question that was asked because you forwarded it to me. So thank you for that. And um, I think part of the confusion right now is at least the information that I've presented to the world. It's just kind of been a summary of of that research that's showing, wow, you put people on really, really low fat diets and you see rapid improvements in diabetes and heart disease, multiple sclerosis, a lot of different conditions. And I've been for a really long time now working on a part two for my blog post that's going to be like, oh, here's why that it's showing all this stuff. And I haven't released that yet. So I think people are like, I get all these emails from people who are like, where is your part two? I'm so confused. I'm sure your reader is one of those people because we don't have a really coherent explanation for why all this stuff is happening with these diets that seem really paradoxical. So I can totally understand the confusion there. And for anyone who hasn't seen the research that we're talking about right now, which I I think you're right, is probably most people. um, One of the earliest studies that was done on a very, very, very low fat, very, very, very high sugar diet was conducted by someone named Walter Kempner. And he basically took a bunch of people who initially were um, having problems with kidney disease. And he designed this diet that initially was supposed to be therapeutic for kidney failure. And what he saw was that putting people on diets that were composed largely of pure white refined sugar, some fruit, fruit juices, no vegetables, no fat, very, very, very low sodium um, as a way to preserve the electrolyte balance. I mean, this was a diet that was the vast majority was sugar and the carbohydrate content ran around 96% of the diet. So it was like almost pure, pure sugar. And it's like they were just eating like Roger's sugar out of the bag. Yeah, basically. I'm not sure how they made it palatable, but it was, that's what they were consuming. And it wasn't necessarily for most people who were diseased, it wasn't necessarily a low calorie diet either. Um, the, they have descriptions of the diet being 2,000 calories, 
with um, you know just incredible amounts of sugar that were that were making up the calorie balance so that people wouldn't lose too much weight if they were going on this diet. I mean, it was like it was like a lot of sugar, and you see that and you're like, wow, okay, let's apply our current knowledge to that diet. We would assume people were keeling over left and right and just becoming diabetic and their blood sugar was skyrocketing and insulin and blah, blah, blah. What actually happened was the majority of people who are diabetic who went on this diet saw an improvement of their blood sugar, needed less insulin if they were initially on insulin and had a lot of, imp- a lot of improvements in their condition. And some of them went, got to the point where they were no longer considered diabetic. And again, this is a diet that's almost pure sugar. So we see that and it's like, whoa, what is going on there? And with that, that same diet, there were things reversing, um, you know, different autoimmune conditions, psoriasis, skin conditions were getting better. Some people saw improvements of um, heart disease and uh, a heart failure. All these conditions were improving and not for everybody, but for enough people and generally for the majority of people who would, who would go on this diet, those things improved. And again, this is a from a micronutrient standpoint, this diet was a mess. I wouldn't for anyone listening right now, I do not recommend you go on that kind of diet if you have diabetes. But the fact that it could improve people who were suffering from diseases that we typically attribute to too high of a sugar intake, and they're actually improving, it's like what was going on there. So that's that was fascinating to me. And when I first saw that study, I was like, there's something going on here that we should really look at, and we should try to figure out what's going on there, just so we understand, because we can't explain it right now. And if there's something we can't explain, it means there's a deficiency in our knowledge. So that was conduct. you know, there's stuff that Kempner was doing back in the 1940s. Can I just- can I just pa- like pause for a second? Denise, yeah. you say amazing things that I just want to point out, like deficiency of knowledge. Like this is, <laughs> I hope that people are picking up these nuggets and you know, we need to like create oh, a yeah. graphic of all of your amazing knowledge bombs as they drop so that we can like share them on social media. Like, did you know Denise said this in the podcast? Yeah. You're not going to want to, you're not going to want to. We should just make a bunch of, of memes now. For sure. A bunch of memes. That would make my life. Thank you. I'd love to <laughs> now, I'd one of the things that. though, I, I just wanted, cause I, if I remember this correctly, mm-hmm. but the people who had reversal of their diabetes, it like stayed reversed even when they went back to their normal diets, right? Exactly. So basically Kempner initially brought these people to, it was a program attached to Duke University at the time where he had come to work and they, you know, they'd be inpatients for a while. So they'd be very closely monitored. Their diet would be very, very, very closely monitored. And then after some period of time when their condition stabilized or improved, they'd be weaned on to more flexible diets that were still relatively low fat, but not to the point of where it was initially, but they could incorporate more foods, more vegetables, fruits, um, lean meats. It was still just going to be moderately low fat, but they were able to maintain the improvements that they saw in that super high sugar, super low fat period that they were on. So it wasn't like a quick fix that just uh, you know, worked for a few weeks or something. Some people were on this diet, even the strictest version of it for years and it's the same thing happened. They, it was an improvement that seemed to be consistent and enduring. So, whoa, totally mind-blowing, right? So that was the Kempner stuff. And that was just the first leg of, of a lot of different research that was going on. We also had um, a man named Roy Swank, who's from my same hometown of Portland, Oregon, who studied multiple sclerosis. And he, after much epidemiological study, had developed a theory that saturated fat, there's something about saturated fat that he pinpointed as being 
um, involved in the, the progression of multiple sclerosis. And he didn't believe it was a cause so much as something that would exacerbate the condition in people who are genetically susceptible. So he, he found, um, you know, I think he focused on Norway, for instance, was it Norway? Is one of those countries up there? It's like one of those cold countries, you know. Where, and there's, there's like looking at the mountains. <laughs> this is where you where can, they eat a lot of fish. One of those ones. The yeah. knowledge exists is in geography. So please, you can also make a meme out of that. He doesn't know where Norway is. <laughs> That's anyway. that makes me feel better about myself, Denise. It's an ongoing <laughs> joke on the podcast. Oh, trust me. We can we can be knowledge deficient geography connoisseurs. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, sounds like a good party to me. So anyway, he was observing like in the mountainous regions of one ambiguous country that I can't remember. He was observing that people living in these uh, farming regions where they are consuming a lot of milk and animal products from land animals, they had an incredibly high, relatively speaking, rate of developing multiple sclerosis relative to the coastal um, communities where they subsisted mostly on fish. And so the fat intake was much different. You had omega-3s versus a much higher saturated fat intake in the mountains. And in the coast, the, the rates of multiple sclerosis were extremely low. So, you know, he didn't have a lot of evidence to go on. But back then, this field was so new and there just nobody really knew much of anything. So he had to start somewhere. So he ended up putting patients who had um, different degrees of multiple sclerosis, different severities. He put them on a diet designed to be extremely, extremely low in saturated fat. Um, he was a little bit more lenient with other forms of fat, especially polyunsaturated fat, but it was still a very low-fat diet, and it was still very high carbohydrate. And this was another diet that wasn't whole foods. It wasn't, you know, you can't eat refined grains, you can't eat sugar. It was like, yeah, you know, that stuff was pretty loud in that diet. You can look at his recipe books to to see how um, liver liver. What word am I looking for? Liberal. Liberal. Yeah. Liberal. Liberal, yeah. Liberal he was. It's a team effort. That was wonderful. Thank you. I need you along with me while I struggle to work <laughs> on my, my day-to-day life, such as countries. Anyway, so this is the episode in which everyone realizes Denise is not that smart. It's not the case. You've already, you've already impressed everyone. You're good. You're good. I'm good for life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll just ride on those coattails for a while. Um, so anyway, um, so he developed this diet and he was putting people on this diet, uh, again, this was not a short-term thing. He followed these people for decades, and he monitored their adherence. He would have them mail in um, different forms that they would fill out, monitoring their diet and documenting what they're eating so that he could track their health improvements or decline over the course of, again, decades, like up to 50 years and beyond for some of these patients. And what he found was a very, very distinct dividing line between the people who adhered to his diet and stayed really, really low saturated fat and low total fat and people who, you know, didn't do so well sticking to the diet and ended up uh, foraying back into the world of fattier foods. And the people who stuck with the low fat thing, their multiple sclerosis was basically held stable or improved almost across the board. There are only a few exceptions, but for the vast majority of people, their, um, their rates of flare-ups uh, just declined and declined, declined very rapidly after they initially started the diet and then stayed very stable for the rest of their lives. And this was another study where it's like, wow, okay, that doesn't really fit with our understanding of what would be causing a flare-up in multiple sclerosis. We have people like Terry Walls who are also 
seeming to use a lot more fat and having success. So what was going on with that? But his research was in, incredibly compelling. He was an excellent researcher. He, for, for the information he had and for the resources he had, he really did a great job documenting the long-term effects of his diet. And so here's another condition, multiple sclerosis, that seemed to be helped by this paradoxical diet that we can't really mesh with our current understanding, especially from a paleo framework. So that was another piece of research. Tons of people, not tons, but you know, a handful of people also looking at heart disease, such as Nathan Pritikin. Um, some people may remember Pritikin as uh, the super, super low-fat guy from like the 70s, 80s, and beyond. He started a program initially to reverse his own heart disease, which he was diagnosed with at a fairly young age. He had very high cholesterol. He was having abnormal EKGs, um, and he was diagnosed with uh, heart disease. And he was, after much self-guinea-pigging, I mean, like, just meticulous. This guy was meticulous with how he tweaked different elements of his own diet and documented the precise effects on his blood panels. Just amazing work that he took incredible documentation of. He concluded for himself that it was a very, very, very low-fat diet, um, very low in animal products, but not completely vegan, that for him was able to normalize his EKGs and essentially fix his heart disease. And when he passed away later on in life, um, he was given an autopsy and his arteries were completely clear, even though I think he was, was he in his late 60s? I forget the exact age, but his story is very interesting. But anyway, so this is another individual who initially came into that field, just self-guinea-pigging, found something that worked for him, and then created an entire clinic to where he brought in thousands and thousands of people to come help with their heart disease after a while. It was for weight loss as well. And he uh, has a number of papers published, uh, both by himself and by people who used his diet on others for the same reason, showing uh, improvements in uh, glycemic control. It helped diabetics. Uh, heart disease was definitely helped. Absolutely. People were brought, brought back from their deathbed on an extremely low-fat diet. The same thing we kind of think now is what caused heart disease. So there's this. it's a very difficult thing. And when I was coming across all this research, I was just face palming left and right. And I was like, no, I have to change my belief system. <laughs> I have to, I have to, like, it was very painful. Kind of, you know, when you, when you think you have something figured out and then you get all of these anomalies and you can't ignore them. If you want to be scientific, you can't ignore yeah. things that contradict your viewpoint just because they contradict your viewpoint. You want to integrate those and create a new model from which to view the world. So there's Pritikin. Um, I mean, there's since Pritikin, there's been a few others such as, um, Caldwell Esselstyn, who I think more people are familiar with just because he's the guy behind Forks Over Knives and some of these more high-profile, more recent pieces of media promoting a low-fat plant-based diet. Um, but his is, you know, for the long time I thought people like him, John McDougall, um, these people who are promoting low-fat plant-based whole foods diets, for a long time when I was seeing the success that they were obtaining, I was assuming you know, it's because of the whole foods component. It's because they're still micronutrient focused. Their diets are eliminating, yeah, they're eliminating animal products, but they're also eliminating refined sugar, vegetable oils, refined grains, all these things that paleo also agrees should be omitted from the diet. So I, I could at least mentally understand how that kind of, that kind of dietary setup could offer benefits, especially from somebody coming from a standard Western diet, you know, where the the micronutrient ratio to energy intake is just miserable. Um, but with a lot of these other programs, like Kempner and um, um, you know the MS program, 
you can't really use that justification because they weren't whole foods and they were still had a lot of really crappy foods that they included. So there's something to the fact that Sarah was talking about earlier that when you scoot to one of these extremes of the macronutrient spectrum, there's something different that's happening metabolically. And that's not to say that people need to be on an extreme to prevent a disease. That's a much different story. And that's a much, I think this is where we have that, that difference between prevention versus fixing something that's already existing. Um, this is more of like a therapeutic approach to fix something that that's really wrong with the body. And what, um, what I'd like to talk about a little bit right now is why, <laughs> like, what is it about lowering fat intake to extreme levels? And I don't mean USDA levels. Like if you look at the food pyramid, if you look at the American Heart Association, if you look at all these different organizations that are promoting a quote unquote low fat diet, it's always about 30% of the calories coming from fat. They're calling that low fat. Whereas all these people whose research I've just been talking about, they're more along the lines of 10% fat or less. I'm talking like low, low, low fat, very low fat. And that's where the distinction comes from. The, we see miserable failure for the most part when we keep fat intake at 30% of calories and do a grain-based diet and the whole food pyramid thing, which based on my book title alone, you might figure that I don't. <laughs> I don't <support laughs> In case anyone was wondering still, no, I'm not a fan. Um, but the problem seems to be a mixture. It's when you get into those the, the swampland, as I call it, where you're having refined grains, refined sugar, and a moderate fat intake. There seems to be something pretty disease-promoting about that mixture. And so what happens, one of the things that happens when you take fat down to a very, very low level is um, actually has to do with what's going on in the gut. And Sarah, you'll love this. I know you love the gut. Um, so this one of the things I kept coming across when I was trying to find explanations for these people's research had to do with endotoxin and chylomicrons and how endotoxin gets transported into the bloodstream, can cause inflammation, and is linked to a whole bunch of different modern diseases. And one thing that happens with a very high fat intake, and it depends largely on the type of fat. Saturated fat is the worst worst offender, and um, omega-3 fats are the least. When you eat a very high saturated fat intake, uh, across the board, every almost every study I've seen shows that the level of endotoxin in the blood increases. And part of this has to do with um, chylomicrons, which are the body's fat transporters. When you consume a lot of fat, um, chylomicrons will carry endotoxin. They'll form in the gut, carry endotoxin into the bloodstream, and basically raise your levels of endotoxin, which in turn may contribute to a lot of different diseases that we're trying to get rid of. And uh, across the board, from what I can see, it's saturated fat that has has the highest endotoxin raising potential. Um, monounsaturated fat is better, and uh, polyunsaturated fat is the lowest. And so you see that initially, and I, I've seen a lot of these studies cited as reasons like, oh, no, we have to stop eating fat. But I think there's another way of looking at it. You can do two things if you want to reduce endotoxin presence in the bloodstream. One is you can eat a super low-fat diet. Two, you can eat a diet that pr promotes a healthy microbiome so that you're producing less endotoxin to begin with. Yeah. And so when you do eat fat, it's not going to enter the bloodstream in those obscene quantities. So what we see as this approach that has been working for these low-fat diets is they take that, that first thing I mentioned, which they're like, okay, well, you know, even if they don't understand why their diets work, this could be the, the mechanism, which is you lower fat, and you're not going to have that 
immediate transport of endotoxin into the bloodstream after a high fat meal. And especially over time when you're, you're recalibrating the body in that way with this, this kind of diet, um, I can definitely see how that would cause improvements in these different diseases that could be linked with endotoxin. Now, you could also take another approach like paleo, which does not put, for the most part, put limits on fat intake, but it will create, if you're doing it well, it will create a very healthy microbiome where when you do eat fat, you're not going to see that surge of endotoxin into the bloodstream just because your microbiome is a lot healthier. So that's perhaps one reason we see two different opposing dietary paradigms working and affecting the same diseases in similar ways, even though their approach is so different. Um, for diabetes, I also found really interesting things with the potential of saturated fat in particular to potentiate the um, secretion of insulin after carbohydrates are consumed. And the best studies I've seen looking at this have been with, done with potatoes and butter. Um, some of the studies have been done on diabetics, which are the most interesting to me because a lot of these diets you know, specifically treat diabetics. And one thing that I saw in some of these studies is, uh, is kind of the same, same pattern, same um, study design in all of them, which, which was a diabetic would be fed a potato, a baked potato with either no butter, small, small amount of butter, a little bit more butter, a little bit more butter, or a lot of butter. And with each experiment, their blood sugar was measured for the period after they consumed the potato and their insulin was measured as well to see how much insulin they were secreting. And in diabetics, we, well, you know, there's this belief that you add fat to a carbohydrate and you're going to slow down the blood sugar response and slow down the insulin response. With diabetics, that was not seen at all. In fact, the more butter was added to the potato, the higher their insulin secretion was oh. uh, consistently. I know it's like, I was looking at this as amazing. It's like, whoa. So that's part of the reason I think that diabetic diets are told to, they're, they're told to eat low fat diets. And I think part of that is based on studies like these that have shown that, yeah, when you do add fat to a high carbohydrate meal, they're secreting more insulin. It's not blunting their blood sugar. In fact, I think I, I would want to check the study to make sure this was the case, but I think for diabetics, their, their blood sugar might have gone up as well with each subsequent addition of more fat. Now, when these studies were done on healthy, non-diabetic individuals, um, there was an improvement in blood sugar after you know subsequent additions of fat, but insulin levels actually stayed the same. And what that kind of means, if we think about it, is you could eat a potato with a little bit of butter, and you're going to have a blunted blood sugar response, and you're going to require a certain amount of insulin to process it all. When you add more fat onto that and your blood sugar is um, blunted even more, you still need the same amount of insulin, which means for a smaller quantity of blood sugar, your body is actually having to secrete more insulin to handle it. So there's something going on there, even in healthy individuals, an interaction between carbohydrate and at least some type of fat. And I'm not... I'm not going to jump on the train and say that this is something pathological or that, you know, the human body is not designed to eat carbohydrates and fat at the same time. But for people who are susceptible, um, especially for people, I think, who have a consistently higher than necessary energy intake and are, you know, eating maybe a standard American diet and um, eating a lot of low quality foods, there could be a mechanism between that fat and carbohydrate, some kind of interaction there that is 
reducing their ability to handle carbohydrates. And I, I don't want to say too much more on that topic until I actually feel like I'm confident on, on what's going on there. But it's a thing. It's a thing that's happening. And I'm, I'm like super curious about it personally. Um, but, you know, you see when we see studies like that, it kind of makes more sense that we saw diabetics improving on an extremely low fat diet because the fat was stripped away and maybe that made their bodies more capable of handling absurd amounts of sugar, like with Walter Kempner's diet. And um, my hypothesis is if you add a little bit of bit more fat to that really high sugar diet, that therapeutic effect is just going to disappear. And I think that's why so many of these promoters of low fat, whole foods, plant-based diets that we see today, they're so adamant about not eating any fat. Um, Esselstyn, you know, he's even like, you know, can barely eat any nuts or seeds, even whole food fats. They're, they're very strictly limited on these programs. And I think because clinically these, these doctors who are prescribing this diet have seen with their patients that even small additions of fat to this really, really high carbohydrate diet seem to ruin its therapeutic effect. And, you know, my, my personal belief is, Long term, that's it's not going to be the healthiest choice for most people to eat a diet that 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 is that low in fat. I think it can be a lifesaver for some people. Just as a ketogenic diet can be a lifesaver in some circumstances too. But for the most part, I think we should look at that research and see how interesting it is, and we should embrace the quest for more knowledge to understand why they were successful. But people like your reader who wrote who wrote in that question. Um, if that, you know, hello, if you're listening right now, I just kind of tell you, um, you know, don't get scared by seeing that into a belief system that that's the only way to stay healthy, because those diets were really good at treating existing conditions. But I don't see their necessity for a healthy person who doesn't have those conditions yet. It's more of a, a last ditch effort to reverse something that's been building up over the course of someone's lifetime. I just talked a lot. I have, okay, so I have so many um, sort of, I guess, questions slash <laughs> okay, before uh, you, comments that I want to make. I was going to say, before you ask questions or comments, I just want to add on to Denise, one of the things that, well, what you closed with was that it can be therapeutic, but you don't see it as necessary for people who don't yet have those. And I, what I would add to that is that there's just as much information available on at least some of those health conditions to show that there are, there's not only one way to solve that problem that there are, you know, like seeing that one, not one study, but you know, this, this one hypothesis that we're looking at doesn't negate all the other information and hypothesis that we also have. And I think that's what really interested me about your bringing it to the paleo view was that, you know, we could, I have a conversation about like it's we've always said it's not a one size fits all approach to paleo. And mm -hmm. this is exactly what we're talking about, right? Like, no, we're not going to send you home and eat bags and bags of sugar. But also, <laughs> like, we need to be mindful of the science. And we need to look at all things. And we need people to listen to their own bodies and, and approach it that way. Sorry, Sarah. You. It's okay. So I'm, I'm just um, absolutely like, nerding out over the idea of um, endotoxin translocation as being the mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of wanted to expand a little bit on that. So um, because I used to study endotoxin. Um, so endotoxin, which is also 
called um, the, the more technical name is lipopolysaccharide, is a protein from the cell wall of a class of bacteria called gram-negative bacteria. And we have, you know, some normal residents of our um, gut are gram-negative bacteria, but we also have what are called gram-positive bacteria. Gram-positive bacteria don't have endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide in their cell membranes. And what's really fascinating is how sensitive those populations are to our fiber intake. So um, uh, Jeff Leach, who is like an absolute hero of mine from um, the uh, Human Human Food Project um, and Human Gut Project, I guess they're sort of linked, he did um, a stool analysis on himself after eating his sort of normal diet, which is very, very high in vegetable matter because he's a fiber nut. And then he went on, he went traveling and he was mostly eating in restaurants and it was a much, much lower fiber diet. And um, there's an epic post that I'm sure we can find and put in the show notes of his um, where he, you know, he basically tried a whole pile of different diets over a year and looked at the effect they had on his microbiome. And when he was eating a very high vegetable matter um, diet, his microbiome was about three quarters firmicutes um, family phyla, I guess, of bacteria, which are gram positive. And when he reduced his fiber intake and it looked a lot more like a standard Western diet, it completely shifted. So it ended up being, um, you know, two thirds or a little bit more than two thirds uh, bacteroidetes, which are gram negative. And so it's a really phenomenal example of how sensitive our uh, gut, you know, microorganisms are to the food we're feeding them. And I just love this idea that um, we've got sort of two ways to reduce um, endotoxin, which is highly inflammatory. And it's actually used in research studies to trigger inflammation to cause um, diseases in, you know, lab animals to, for first. Uh, research purposes, um, because it's so phenomenally inflammatory, right? It causes um, sepsis in humans, for example. That's that's the cause of sepsis in critical care wards. Um, and so I, I love the idea that we've got these two ways to reduce endotoxin and then therefore reduce the sort of assault on the immune system. You know, it's, it's a pretty toxic substance. It's, um, you know, really hard on our vasculature, right? We've got two ways. We've got this like ridiculous low fat diet or, hey, let's make some choices that correct the gut microbiome and have this much healthier ratio of gram positive to gram negative bacteria so that we just don't have as much endotoxin. And I just think that is um, a really like it's just so insightful and I'm I'm really excited about it. I have a question for you because you mentioned that saturated fats were the best at uh facilitating transport of endotoxin uh across the gut barrier and that 
polyunsaturated were the worst. Is there a difference between omega-3s and omega-6s? You know, I'm I'm not quite sure. Um, from what I was reading, it, it has to do with the number of double bonds. The more double bonds in the fat, the less endotoxin gets into the bloodstream. So I think it... I haven't seen anything differentiating. No, I, I actually really don't know. There might be studies on that, but I haven't seen them. I'd be interested uh, to know too. We'll, we'll nerd out on that one later. Yes, we will. There'll be a follow-up, follow-up podcast <laughs> in the future. When I need another self-esteem boost. So um, I really... <laughs> right? Should be my um, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Done. Um I, you know, I feel like that was an incredibly thorough answer to Valerie's question, even though I never read Valerie's question um, <laughs> for Valerie. Um, uh, and Valerie started her question with lots of compliments, which, of course, I'm is... I'm 100% sure that Valerie would be thrilled that we're all geeking out and girl crushing on each other over her question. Like, she's, right. she's created amazingness. So she's she's okay. But okay. do you want to... So I just want to make sure... Well, I just want to make sure that Valerie gets credit for asking this question and for inspiring this podcast. Um, because I kind of feel like... You know, her her question was really, you know, looking at these super um, low fat plant based, you know, diets that are purported to do things like cure Crohn's disease and, you know, WTF, what's what's <laughs> what is this and how do we reconcile this with paleo? And I think we perhaps um, thanks to Denise dived into it at a probably more technical level than, uh, than Valerie was expecting. But, um, I, I'm just, I'm like in, I'm in, I'm in happy nerd town right now. So I just want to <laughs> thank Valerie for her question. Because... I like the bouncer on the outside of happy nerd town. I'm like, come on in guys. They won't let me inside, but it's nice to see you. <laughs> You're like carding people at the door. Yep. Yeah. Do you uh, your nerd card wait. today. Are you are you nerd enough for this one? Yeah. Um, well, I cannot thank Denise uh, enough for coming. I know that you um, were kind of invited with not a ton of notice and um, were flexible <laughs> with our recording. No, this, this it evening. wasn't very much notice and it was pretty much no flexibility. <laughs> <laughs> but and I yet, mean, I think there might have been some polite words like please. There yeah. might have been that. And yet there you're are. here dropping knowledge bombs and amazing quotes as usual. So for everybody else who is also um, happily girl crushing or just regular crushing on Denise, uh, you can find her updated <laughs> website at denisminger.com if you have not yet looked into um, some of her amazing in-depth blog post, uh, critical responses, and book, I would definitely recommend that you do that. You can find all that information at JanaeSanger.com. And it sounds like we're going to have a follow-up, uh, follow-on part two Geek Fest sometime in the future. But um, until then, thank you again so much for joining us and coming on the Paleo View, Janice. Thank you so much for the last-minute invitation. <laughs> 
at least our other guests aren't going to be like, wait, I thought you said that you guys are super busy. Like, no, no, no. We just invited her last minute. <laughs> she was mentioned in person in this question. Yeah. I mean, there was no choice. It would blame, blame Valerie. It's, it's all good. Thank you. Thank you again, Denise. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Hello! Wait! Woo! <laughs> yes! Yes! I win at technology. Yes! <laughs> Hashtag winning right there. Our, our favorite moment was when we tried to conference you in and Skype said one of these people needs to update their technology to join and Sarah and I are already on so we're like don't talk about Denise like that <laughs> what Great is passive aggressive on Skype's part totally. <laughs> oh my god seeking the truth never gets old Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.